and welcome to Pints and Politics. First, like to acknowledge that we are situated on the lands of the Mississaugic and the traditional territory covered by the Williams Treaties. Chimbigwich to all First Nations, Potawatomi and the Mohawks, along with the Mississaugic, for caring for this territory. So you're listening to Pints and Politics. We're a podcast that's posted at pintsandpolitics.ptvopodcaster.ca. This is episode number 111. You can also listen or subscribe by searching for Pints and Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. We're also an occasional panel discussion program on Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 FN. Now, we explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough, Ontario, and Canada. This episode was recorded on January 16th, 2022. Joining me for this discussion is a member of our regular politics panel, plus a few guests. First, we have property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio. Then we have a paralegal professional, photographer and comedian, Jill Tilly. And rounding out, we have Peterborough City Councillor Stephen Wright. So today our focus is on Ontario's COVID management uh, and also the threats to democracy and possible instability in the U.S. looming later this year. Or at least those are the topics or were the topics I wanted to touch on. But the three of you are today's guests So are there any other topics you'd like to at least surface first and comment on before we dig into Ontario's COVID and U.S. instability? The floor is yours. I feel like both of those topics have lots to to discuss in them, so I'm sure we will have no problems filling the hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We could go days on those. All right. Okay. Well, with that as an intro, then let's jump into my first question. How is Doug Ford and the Ontario uh, PCs handling this phase of the pandemic? I'll call it the winter Omicron phase, if we can give it that label. Uh, For example, Uh, What do we think of the rapid antigen test distribution? I queued up four times to get enough tests for my household. What about others? This is Jill speaking. uh, I've been very lucky to have access to a rapid test through an old employer, but our neighbors upstairs also had to queue up at the library several times to take care of family members who are older and can't stand out in the cold, you know, for hours waiting for these tests. It seems like it should be something fairly simple for the size of the province and the wealth of this country to be able to send everyone a a set of tests. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, I was thinking I queued four times, got tests three times. uh, And, you know, I have the right outdoor equipment and uh, I'm used to winter. Uh, Granted, I am old, but, you know, it was quite quite a process. I mean, you're absolutely right. It takes some physical endurance. And what about the people who uh, have limited mobility? What did they do? I think this is, Jen, just to kind of expand on a point that that Jill had alluded to is what I have found frightening about, well, this rapid testing and a whole host of other things is we are a first world nation. And the fact that people, like we are a wealthy country, and the fact that people are lining up at four and five o'clock in the morning so they can secure one or two rapid tests is absurd for me. This has been going on for two years. Like you're telling me that the people running this rapid test distribution program didn't see this coming down the line. I have no idea why this has been so challenging to get our mm. hands on them. I don't understand. Uh, Bill, uh, Stephen. Sure, Stephen. Um, and, and I would have to agree with the, the uh, Jenny's comments. You know, there's one piece of ID that every single uh, one of us have uh, that we're given the day we're born or when we enter the province, uh, and that's an Ontario health card. Yes, uh, we, we know what the vaccine uh, mandates and the uh, 
the QR code system, that there was a better way of tracking the distribution of these antigen tests. There were a number of other equitable measures that could have been deployed to ensure these tests were given out to those that need them. You know, the one part, I'm not going to completely criticize the government for what it did, because one of the things that it did do and, and was the right move was when test kits were given out to the kids in school to take home. However, uh, those of us that didn't have children in school or don't have children in school, you know, you could have picked up an antigen test when you did your grocery. You could have picked up an antigen test when you went to the LCBO. There was ways of actually doing that and tracking it with the provincial system that's already in place, uh, you know, for our vaccine mandate to determine who's already got one so that you don't have anyone hoarding tests. So there were better ways of distributing it. Uh, listen, I'm no fan of the coal, and there was no way I was going to wake up any of these uh, uh, lineups, you know, uh, to try and get an antigen test. So as a matter of not having children in school and uh, not a fan of the coal, I don't have one for my household. Yeah. Now, Dave Smith did put out on social media, I uh, tweeted that, well, why didn't they mail it and uh, mail them? And Dave Smith did put out a tweet saying, well, we couldn't mail them because the vaccine has to be kept between plus two degrees Celsius and 30 degrees Celsius. And it's been, we haven't had any days that have been that warm in Peterborough for a while. So I mean, fair point. But Stephen, to your point, there are other ways, grocery stores, pharmacies, LCBOs, etc. Okay. Well, antigen tests. Now, what do we make of uh, Ford's and Lecce's planned uh, reopening of in-person learning in our schools? Will the announced measures of the N95 masks and improved ventilation be enough? Or has the government failure to reduce class sizes nullified whatever positive effects the announced measures might have? What do we think of this school plan? I don't have a child that's in like my daughter's in post-secondary education now. So I don't really have any skin in the game as far as elementary and high school goes, but I have lots of friends that do. And like, it's, these kids have got to get back to school. Like there's, you know, people are struggling. They're struggling with homeschooling. Their children children are struggling with loneliness. You know, as far as the masks go and the HEPA filters go in the schools, you know, like, I'm trying to think of a way to say this that doesn't sound like too bad, get back to work. But at some point, like there is risk involved with everything. You know, you send your kids to school and there's a risk of chickenpox or head lice or the cold or the flu or whatever. I mean, get your kids vaccinated, wear the mask, like wash their hands. Like we know what all of the steps are that we're supposed to be taking. You know, I don't know what... Besides just like jumping in and getting back, getting the kids back to school, I'm not sure what the other alternative is because keeping them home, I don't think is working either. Like it's just producing a whole host of other problems. I think that I I hear Jen's point in that um, keeping the kids at home is definitely causing a variety of problems for them emotionally. I don't have children personally, but the, you know, to say that there's a risk involved is true, whether it be chicken pox or head lice, but we're now seeing studies showing that Children who contract COVID may develop diabetes, a variety. And COVID is a different beast than those other things. Those are things you recover from. And, you know, we're seeing people with long COVID, long-term effects. Even people who have a a light case tend to have longer-term effects. I've worked with someone who contracted COVID early in the pandemic prior to vaccinations. And even now, even though he was a healthy, like, 45-year-old man, he still is struggling with lung issues going forward. And I think the government has failed in some ways to provide an appropriate and safe place for children to be in school. And I think part of that has to do with there's a lack of teachers. You know, we're seeing a lot of teachers quitting their jobs because it's it's becoming overwhelming for not enough pay. You know, we're not paying our teachers enough and providing them with enough support to be able to manage this as well. You know, I've heard a lot of teachers say we were heroes at the beginning of the pandemic and now we're nothing. And I think that that sentiment is going to affect the children as well. Yeah, Bill, uh, Stephen, you know, both uh, Jill and Jenny make two significantly important points. 
Jenny is right when it said the kids need to be in school uh, because of the socialization factor. Uh, you know, when we think what the cleanup phase of COVID might look like after we've reached a state of endemic, um, you know, you will have some children that are not able to socialize. So that has, uh, you know, element of who they are as individuals has been significantly impacted. You know, as part of the public, we, we're not privy to some of the conversations that happen at the science table. Even when you talk about the anti-vaxxers and their issues, part of the concern uh, with that group is they go to the conspiracy theory because that's the only opposing information available. Had the public had more insight to the discussions that are happening at Science Day, but we'd get a better understanding of the government's decision to, say, suspend in-class learning or to resume in-class learning. You know, there are a number of epidemiologists that you hear from that are saying, uh, uh, you know, we're not going to get on the other side of this pandemic until we reach a point of herd immunity. You know, the question is what comes after the Omicron variant and we get closer to herd immunity if our children are not in school. Now, one other thing, uh, what do we think about the various vaccine mandates in Ontario or lack of same? Now, Ford appears to be able to play hardball with the bars, the restaurants and the gyms, but there is not a peep about construction sites, large factories and other large congregate work settings how's he doing on that front um as far like i can the only one that i can really speak to is the construction sites because that's where i work um the theory behind keeping them open is that typically they are large enough that you can space out that tradespeople yep. can space out in them right or that they are out outdoors but things like construction workers i mean you know they were considered what did they call them Essential services, like if you were building yeah. X, Y, and Z, you yeah. you were allowed to continue to go on. And and really, for the most part, construction sites have kind of flown under the radar because there haven't been any substantial outbreaks associated with with a construction site. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of how we've managed to chug along. Not to say that our industry hasn't been impacted by this, because every industry has been impacted from it, but. The construction sites that I'm familiar with, I know that like there's always safety measures being taken, but there are extra ones being taken now. And the bottom line is nobody wants to get sick and not be able to work because typically when you work in a in a trade, if you don't work, you don't get paid. So you know nobody wants to be stuck at home. Yeah, and that of course brings up the whole issue of what has support been like for exactly as you're saying, Jen, people who are only get paid when they work who don't have right. benefits. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's huge. Yeah, so Stephen here, Bill. You know, the I've talked to small business owner who've called them half measures and harmful measures. Right. Uh, and you know, and specifically in Peterborough, because there's been so much reporting on the daily COVID counts that it's reasonable the pushback our small business owners have uh, had in respect to restaurants open their clothes because of our low case counts in our region. You know, talking to one business owner a few days ago who said, listen, I've got the ability to manage how many people actually come into my store. I've got the ability to schedule the times individuals come in and shop. And if we remember the last major lockdown, you know, by the government, understandably, you're trying to control the number. And we all get that. But the measures taken left the big box store open. Even today, you walk into a Walmart, people are side-by-side side shopping carts. You go into yep. a Costco, people are side-by-side. Side. But you walk into one of the smaller retailers in Peterborough, and you, in most cases, even on their busiest days, you don't find five people in that store at any one time. It's easier to manage. And when you look at this spread, if you go back to, say, even last, uh, uh, probably January, early January last year, uh, with the Amazon numbers for those facilities. One facility in Mississauga had 900 COVID cases. And if you think the communal spread using the modeling numbers from 900 direct cases to one work site, it is much more than I would say the collective small businesses in, in you know, from Quarter Lakes right to Ottawa 
have had as in respect to impact on communal spread. Stephen, what you're saying, I mean, one of the consequences is if you're a Bill's Corner grocery store, well, we'll shut Bill down. But if you're Amazon, you might also be able to donate far more money to someone's political campaign than Bill's Corner store. You know, there's a political tilt to that. The the decisions that benefit the community should never be polled as to whether there are political advantages to make a decision one way versus another. It should be based on what's best for the community. You know, our small business owners, when you think of the amount of taxes they pay and how they are directly impacted, uh, you know, are we going to see a rise in in suicide cases attached to mental health issues? Uh, You know, we've got, and again, the example of, uh, you know, Bill's Corner Grocery Store. Bill's got employees. He pays a payroll tax. He pays uh, property taxes. Uh, you know, if he's fortunate to make enough in income, you know, Bill's corner store might even be able to draw a salary for Bill himself. So mm-hmm. these are significant issues, and that feeds back into the disposable income that allows us to, uh, you know, deal with other service levels provided within the community. Fair enough. Through all of this, I think my frustration has come, and I know that in other podcasts I've mentioned it before, Bill, is the decision to shut down specific in- industries. Um has been made by people with a guaranteed income. These are yes. people who have had zero financial impact. And I have yep. just reached the point that if your bank account has not been affected by this pandemic, I do not want to hear from you. Like right. that is the reality. We are two years into it. You know, people are losing their businesses. They are losing their houses. And nobody's talking about that really. You know, we're talking yeah. about you know, like, like getting wrapped, lining up outside for rapid tests is where the energy is being spent. And I find it so incredibly infuriating as somebody who's, my family has been built on a small business. My husband runs a small business. I run a small business myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating. You hear all this talk about other industries and they've been heroes from the beginning. And I'm not saying that they haven't been, and I'm grateful for our help here and teachers. But, you know, I go to the same drive through every morning. And for the past two years, the same three ladies in their 60s have been there every single day working the yeah. drive through window because they have no other choice. And nobody's given them a handout and there's no union fighting for them. Yeah, They don't go to work. They don't get paid. And nobody calls them a hero. So my frustration with that at this point, and I don't mean to say that it all comes down to money, but it kind of does at this point. (laughs) Really? Yeah. We're we're straying. I'm going to stray a bit out of provincial responsibility here, but I have to ask Quebec, province of Quebec is talking about bringing in a tax on anti-vaxxers or people who refuse the vax. How should Ontario deal with the anti-vaxxers? And, and let me say, <laughs> the same breath, uh, so I don't get in trouble. When I say anti-vaxxers, I, I acknowledge that there is a wide range. There are some people who medically cannot get the vaccine, and I acknowledge that. And then there are others who their decisions based on other criteria. What do you think? So this is Jill. I think um, I am very pro-vaccine. I have both shots. I'm boosted. I think everyone has a moral obligation. If they're physically able to get vaccinated, they should. However, the idea of a tax on people who haven't, I think, is very dangerous. It's a slippery slope. Taking apart what is, as, as an American who has come to Canada, taking apart what I think is the most fundamentally Canadian thing, which is a universal healthcare system. And the reason I say that is because, like, as an example, I'm diabetic. Let's say I was having trouble getting my blood sugar to be normal. That makes me a greater risk to the healthcare system. Should I get a tax? I'm a fat person. Should I get a tax? You know, so and it, it, it suddenly becomes thing like, oh, you're, you don't want to get vaccinated, you get a tax to, oh, you disagree with your line of treatment with your doctor, well, now we're taxing you. And then all of a sudden, yeah. that's what HMOs do in the States. And that's, you know, you get to decide. And I think that that is a, again, I strongly feel that everyone should get vaccinated if they're able to. I'm super pro-vaccine, but I think the tax is a terrible idea. And it is going to move us into a system that is much closer to what the U.S. has. And I think it's frankly 
to be a little bit uh, ridiculous here. Frankly, I think it's anti-Canadian. Un-Canadian. All right. All right. Um, I agree, yeah. like, 100% with everything that Jill said. And like Jill, I am vaccinated and boosted and bought into all the propaganda. Get You know, like, get yourself looked after and this will be all over with. And and that's that's great. But the other thing that worries me is you start taxing people about their health care. And like Jill said, then the next thing you know, you're a diabetic. And the next thing you know, you, you're this or that. Why does all of our medical information then become government knowledge? In my mind, mm. some of that... I am vaccinated. I have good friends that aren't vaccinated. And quite frankly, neither situation is really any of anybody's business. I am doing what I feel is right for me and for my community and my family and other people can do the same thing. And keep your eyes on your own paper. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. And I really don't think that it's any of the government's business because, oh, well, you're not vaccinated. And then we all buy into reporting and whether we're vaccinated or not. And then the next thing you know, like Jill said, it's like in the States, all of a sudden people have pre-existing conditions. And like, I just feel like it is a really slippery slope when it comes to our healthcare and the privacy that we are afforded right now around our healthcare and the decisions we make for our own bodies. You know, Bill, Steve here, and, and you know, both Jill and Jenny have, uh, have have mentioned the term the slippery slope, and it's so yeah. true that the danger is there. And, and I mean, Quebec has taken a few steps on a number of issues. I've got something coming before Council on Bill 21, and you know, in conversation with my colleagues yesterday, we talked about the slippery slope. It's easy to get from A to B yep. people find A is an acceptable measure. The, the, the notion of a tax, uh, and when you think of, even in general, who are those loudest about the anti-vaxxers are, are, are among that crowd? You know, we're not talking millionaires here. We're not, we're not talking people of any significant wealth. Or it's people who have misinformation. So... I think the government would be wiser to find ways in which to address the misinformation that's out there. You, you, you know, when you have an opposition to an idea or a plan, don't ignore the person that's opposed to your plan or your idea. You might want to get them to the table and talk about the reasoning for their opposition to the plan because you might find that they're on side with that issue. It's just you've got to straighten out the information that they're getting. You, you know... Uh... There's a uh, issue between the lines here, and I, I, uh, let me spit it out. I'm worried about prejudice. Mm-hmm. We all know what that means. And I have heard some vitriolic, really extreme statements from pro-vax people. And like everyone else, I'm, I've got uh, my booster and my three shots and all the rest of it. But really extreme statements about those, stu- you know, those stupid anti-vaxxers, those insert your expletive anti-vaxxers to heck with them it's time to get tough with them and i'm it's on both sides and of course i've heard and read on social media the jargon used by some anti-vaxxers that the four of us are all sheeple because we've got the so it's on both sides and you know we've heard the phrase slippery slope a few times uh, today how can we put the brakes on that slope personally it's very hard to communicate with people who have decided that, I mean, I think we've all heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the yes. less you know about something, the more you think you're aware of. How do you combat that? I mean, you can sit down and talk to someone. You know, my father's an anti-vaxxer. He refuses to get vaccinated. He thinks there's a microchip in there. He thinks COVID isn't real. How do I communicate that to him? How do I communicate to someone who's literally wearing a star of David and comparing the Holocaust or comparing being asked to be vaccinated or being told they're not allowed to eat in a restaurant because they're not vaccinated to the the persecution and genocide of Jews. You know, I find it, I also find it very difficult to people who are choosing not to be vaccinated without a health reason or, or something a doctor's telling them they shouldn't be that they are choosing themselves over the entirety of society and the safety of others. Um, I find that to be almost, it's, it's hard for me to forgive that behavior. It's morally reprehensible to me, especially when the information is out there. There are people who know better than them, but they believe themselves to be smarter and in on some special line of knowledge that is being hidden from them or believing that the government's hiding 
information from them, it, it becomes overwhelming to a point where what do I say to that person? How do I interact with that person? How do I bring them to the table when, you know, we don't even have the same definition as to what a table is, frankly. Oh yeah. Jen. You know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm vaccinated and um, I didn't do it for any great reason. Like I thought I was going to save the world. I really like to travel and my mother-in-law's in long-term care. So those were my reasons for getting vaccinated. And everybody has their own reasons for getting vaccinated. I think the extreme anti-vaxxers that Jill was alluding to, you, you don't have a conversation. There's, you can't have a rational conversation with an irrational person. It's just not, not going to happen. I, I still believe in the vaccines. I still believe in herd immunity, all of that. But I'm also starting to wane a little bit in my support of it because I feel like I did everything I was told to do. Get in line, make the appointments, get your vaccinations. Nope, get a second vaccination. Oh, now get your booster. I've done all of that. I have 60 apartments of seniors tenants. I've made sure they're all vaccinated twice and then boosted. Like I've done it all. But yet here we are two years later and businesses have been shut down again. I feel like my fear is that that's what people are going to start to think. Like, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore because you promised me if I did X, Y, and Z, this is what would happen. And I know rationally that you can't predict science. And I know that this, we've never been through a pandemic like this and it's impossible to predict how it's going to be. And I know that as a rational person, but I think, you know, if you teeter on the line between rational and irrational, it's going to be very easy going forward for people to say, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore because I did what you asked me to do and it didn't work. So now I'm just going to, you know, do my own thing. And that's where my fear is. Yeah, I, I totally get that. But I think, I mean, I feel that same frustration, but I think the difference is I feel that frustration towards people who have opted not to be vaccinated because the reason we have, and, and frankly, the government to a degree, because, you know, wealthy white nations have been hoarding the vaccine away from poorer countries and that's allowed for, but, you know, when you have these like variants coming out, it's because we haven't been able to eradicate it. It's because some people aren't getting vaccinated and it spreads when people don't vaccinate, you know, and obviously, you know, we're all boosted, but we could all get Omicron as well. And, you know, I hope we don't, but it's, you know, I have friends in Toronto who have gotten it and they've had all three shots and it's not terrible for them and they're all quarantining, but you have so many people just walking around being like, I don't care. And I'm frustrated with this. And it's dangerous because they're going to, the the people who are the most frustrated with it and the most likely to throw up their hands and be like, I'm done with this, are going to be the people who prolong it. Over the past few weeks, move on to our second segment here. Over the past few weeks, I've noticed a growing flood of articles uh, online about the possibility of political instability and unrest in the U.S., stemming from changes to how voting is done and how those changes might show up in the midterm elections in November of this year. Now, without taking a deep dive into the incredibly complex minutiae of how elections work in the U.S., let me summarize uh, what an American, well, actually he's a dual citizen, friend uh, told me about both countries. She said, Bill, there's no such thing as Elections Canada in the U.S. Elections are not run by a national body. Instead, each county runs its own mini-election. Many of the people who run these local elections are appointed or are volunteers. So the Republicans have been taking over these positions and changing the rules, including the boundaries of voting districts, to ensure their supporters have the best opportunity to vote for their party and win. Now, I won't pretend to understand all that, what my friend meant, but suffice to say the system sounds a lot more vulnerable to manipulation than in Canada. I have also heard that if Biden's voter reform bill does not pass, that free elections will be a thing of the past in the U.S., Starting with these midterms, what have you heard? Uh, Bill, it's Stephen here. I remember taking that uh, course in U.S. politics and, and trying to figure uh-huh. out the whole electoral process. And I, 
I didn't pass. You'll, you'll know more than I do. <laughs> I, I had to redo the course because it was so much. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, interestingly enough, when it comes to voter right or the bill that Biden is trying to see pass, you know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the U.S. Right. And if we oh. circle back to some of the issues, even for 1967 uh, or 65, in trying to pass voter rights for African-Americans. You know, here we are, uh, you know, we just had a conversation about slippery slopes. Here we are, again, looking at undoing the the minor progresses that were made back in 1965. I said to a friend yesterday, I had the fortunateness of not being born in the U.S. Uh, yes. You know, yeah. no offense, Joe. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the year I was born, I would not have even been recognized as a person. I would not wow. have the same rights and privileges my friend Jill would have had. And, you know, to see the undoing with gerrymandering saying, you know, and one of the phrases that, that Dr. King used that I really like was that we need to elect leaders who are in love with humanity, not with fame, nor with fortune. And, and it seems that U.S. politics has reached the pivotal point because if we've circled back to even when Donald Trump was president, you know, I've got a lot of friends that made a lot of money. They made a lot of money on the stock market because every time Trump opened his mouth, you knew which way to go. You're either buying or you're selling. And, and here the politics has changed not to focus on. I mean, there was two years of anxiety while they were debating even undoing Obamacare. It wasn't a perfect piece of legislation, but we got. I've got a lot of family in the U.S. and when they're not rich, so even their access to health care, what they got under Obamacare, was significantly important. And to see two years of debate, I mean, it created even anxiety for me on this side of the border because you think, well, how would my family survive? How you know, how are they going to be impacted? And now, you know, you have some that are living in states like in Georgia, saying, well, I may not, my vote may not count for nothing. So where is my representation then? The United States, from the time of the Civil Rights Act to now, has been effectively chipping away at the rights of people of color, people of in poverty. Um, and there's just been a goal, and I not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe there's been a goal from almost both parties to a degree to disenfranchise people who don't hold up to their beliefs. and. The one thing that the Trump administration has done that will have a very long-term effect is that, and the Republican Party, if you'll recall at the end of Obama's term, it was his turn to uh, fill a seat on the Supreme Court, and the Senate refused to hold hearings and gave the seat to Donald Trump. He has filled courts, whether it be the Supreme Court all the way down to federal circuit courts. Uh, These are lifetime appointees. And then when it comes to these election struggles, people will file a lawsuit when they feel something's been unfair. And the people on those courts are going to uphold the principles of the people that appointed them. And the principles of the people that appointed them are classist, racist, and sexist. Over our fair and free elections over in the United States, I don't know if I'd go that far. I don't know if elections have ever been fully fair or free for certain people in the U.S., But I think that with, you know, now that we have seen that there's been Russian interference uh, and potentially Chinese interference, that it's definitely going to be different now. The problem now is that people are very, you know, in the 90s and the early aughts, I think the people who were affected by it were aware of it. But I think that certainly for someone like me who grew up, you know, in a blue state, in a suburb, a very white suburb, Those were issues I just wasn't as aware of as I should have been. And I think that now that there is a a dramatic awareness by people of the struggles of people of color and and with the pandemic, people now starting to understand the class struggle. But is it too late? No, I don't think it's ever too late. But the struggle is now very uphill with the courts being stacked by the Trump administration. But have hope, America, or run away to Canada like I did, whatever you can do. We do need to increase the population in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. <laughs> so, and I'm very happy under, to be here, but don't push it. Yeah, jackets, Joe. We'll happily have them. Yeah, right. Yeah, forty below is a yeah a hey, dangerous place to be. It's so true, and you know, Bill Jill, uh, you know, really summarized it very well. Um, you know, with the concerns 
uh, are. And it has been since the 65, since the days of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, you know, and, and the Deep South issue with Megger Evans. U.S. history, uh, you know, really tells a story of why we went from looking at the African-American story as being about civil rights and being more about human rights. And, you know, everything done over the last, I would say, in my interest, evening in U.S. politics and, and just keeping it attuned as to what's happening over the last 20 years has been to undo the, the, the fairness and the level playing field for all Americans. It, it's, it is concerning because what we see happening on the other side of the border, it's not... It doesn't take long for what is identified as the greatest democracy in the world for other countries to start replicating the same behavior. It's not a far stretch to look at what's happening or the opposition to the voting rights bill to look at what Quebec did with Bill 21. I'm going to have to draw that line. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Because, you know, it, it, you know, we've established on this side of the border and it's relative. uh, If you give me a little latitude here. It's, it's relative because when you think of the charter protection and then all the achievements made, you know, under the civil rights bill, little by little, we're chipping away at these things that truly define what a fair and equitable society should look like. And it is very concerning. Now, as I said in the intro to the segment, you know, the complexities of the U.S. voting system are, are beyond me. And, and thank you. Stephen and Jill for elucidating here, but what concerns me most about this topic is so far in Canada, I haven't seen much study or reportage on what are the impacts for us? What will happen up here? We're a tenth of their, a ninth of their population. We have this long undefended border. Our uh, fruits and vegetables, much of our food comes from the state. What's going what might, what should we be prepared for? I guess that's what I'm trying to spit out. I don't think Canada has anything to worry about, even if, I mean, frankly, the U.S. and Canada historically, especially the U.S., have been much more hostile to leftist governments than they are to right-wing dictatorships. Um, and Canada, even though we have a liberal government, frankly, you know, liberals are moderates here. You know, it's not like the NDP's yeah. in charge, and certainly not like a socialist government is in charge. You know, we saw what the U.S. did in Central Latin America in the 80s when it came to destabilizing elected socialist governments. And we see how the U.S. continues to interact with governments who have, you know, right-wing fascist leaders, uh, even, you know, in Europe today. Um, So I, you know, I don't think we're not going to be able to get lemons. But I think like, you know, at worst, it would get more expensive. You know, a conservative you know, a deeply right-wing or conservative government in the U.S. is going to super right-wing and conservative policies in the U.S. tend to be American insulated, you know, the whole America first nonsense, and they're going to jack up tariffs. So it'll make it more expensive for Canada. But, you know, I I don't think is the U.S. can invade Canada. No, you know, like nothing like that's going to happen. I think the U.S. still values Canada regardless of each side's political beliefs as as you know, we're the one of three countries on this continent, a valuable trade partner, an ally. Uh, and I think no matter, I don't want to say no matter how bad the U.S. gets, I don't want to tempt fate here, but I think Canada will always be warm to the United States, irrespective of who's in charge. I mean, Justin Trudeau was happy to hang out with Donald Trump, and I think they're pretty far apart politically. Okay. And, uh, Stephen here, Bill, uh, when it does come to the economic aspects, I guess it doesn't really matter who's in charge in the U.S. We're our own sovereign country. And, uh, you know, when it comes to even the items that we trade, I mean, our own regulations would still remain. The concerns, uh, you know, with the undoing of the dem- democratic structure in the U.S. is how policies themselves then get established. You know, Relationships are fine, but, you know, any deep analysis of how relationships could be frayed hasn't been really done by anybody that I know of. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're at a point where our new North American trade agreement has got restrictions in it that impact even local governments to engage in social enterprises and social procurement models and because those things are seen as too socialist in approach. Um, so, you know, when right. those are written into international agreement that restrict the opportunity for the less advantage in any society, 
then that becomes a matter of concern. There, there's that element of uh, impact uh, on what happens on this side of the border. Now, I have read that there are uh, about a million Canadians living in the U.S. What happens if a uh, unsavory government is uh, voted in in the U.S. either in two years or uh, or either this fall or in two years and an unfavorable president, if uh, a chunk of those Canadians say, well, I'm going to come home. If Donald Trump didn't send them running back across the border, I do not believe that anybody can. Okay. Like, if they didn't come home when Trump was in power, I don't think they're going to be coming home. Like, okay. like touch wood, like, my God, can it get any worse than he was? Like, I, yeah. I hope not. I'd like to yeah, think we're not. America. You don't underestimate us. We this is it. Worse. This is, maybe this is the problem, Jill. It's the underestimation. Somebody's just going to kind of sneak in and be like, didn't see me coming, right? You think we won't elect Joe Rogan? We'll do it. Oh, exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like, oh. like, you know, the old, like, oh, yeah, hold my beer. Just a second here. Hold my beer. God, is that a phrase? <laughs> so what is there? Well, is there anything that Canadians should be doing, either as a, a populace or our various levels of government, to prepare for an unstable U.S.? Or toilet paper. It could be the reason why I see the grocery stores packed as they are. Uh, you know, in recent days, people are stocking up. Uh, the, the fear is that an unstable U.S. has significant impact on the global economy. Last year, January 6th, when the world watched in horror as to what was happening on the Capitol, Right. You know, you, you pick up your, your, your look at your stock tickers and just start seeing everything being sold off. People were saying, where, you know, where are we heading? It, it's incumbent on the U.S. to always have secure policy. I mean, when the G7s or the G8s or the G21s are getting together, there's always an eye to what U.S. policy is because yes. it does have an impact on global economic stability. I think not to, again, not to be like a conspiracy theorist or to take things to an extreme, but you know, that what happened on January 6th was horrific. But quite honestly, what happened yesterday here in Peterborough at Dr. Pickett's house mm -hmm. isn't right. too far removed from that type of behavior. Right. So I kind of think Canada, Ontario, Peterborough, let's not worry about what's happening south of the border. We've got in our own backyard going on that needs to, to get looked after because that level of crazy is is everywhere. Jen, could and, you, for, for, for the benefit of uh, listeners who are not in Peterborough or, or oh, not aware of what you're talking about, could you sorry. just describe what happened at Pickett's sure. house? So Dr. Pickett is our local head of the health unit. I, I'm not exactly sure what his medical officer, I guess, yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. Peterborough. And the poor man, like, I don't even, he just moved here. I don't even know if he has his boxes unpacked in his house yet. And there is a very vocal group of anti-vaxxing radicals, I, I would say. I don't know them personally, but that's my perception of them, who took it upon themselves um, when they couldn't get action or the attention that they wanted from picketing the public health unit and his place of business, took that activity to his home. And I am all about free speech and the freedom to gather and protest and fill your boots. But it crosses a line when you are outside of somebody's personal home, when their wife and their children who did not sign up for that job are inside it and their neighbors. And I'm not like I, I would never compare that to what happened at the Capitol because it's, it's not an apples to apples comparison. But I do believe it is the same level of radical craziness, in my opinion. Yes. And, and what? Don't have guns. Sure. This this is just they, it. they don't it's, have guns. You know, yes. thank God is we don't have the same right to bear arms here here in Canada. But on a smaller scale, I feel like the last couple of years, like people are losing their damn minds. Like there is not the same rational thought process going on with people. I don't I don't think. It's because there's so, so much disinformation out there that people believe, you know, the crazy you know, again, like my father, God bless him, thinks that the Sandy Hook shooting was a fake thing that was done to take away his right to own guns. He thinks the Notre Dame Cathedral was a false flag. He calls these things false flags. And it's just, it's cuckoo bananas, right? Like it's, and I think a lot of these people are just, they believe something so strongly with no proof. It, it's become like a cult and uh, mm -hmm. there's no, 
I don't know. You see them and you're just like, okay, guys. You know, there's five five dudes with like saggy pants hanging out in front of the visitor center with an upside down Canadian flag in it, and you're like, okay, that's just crazy people. But it was the same in the U.S. You know, like yes. the QAnon stuff. We're just like, Meh. and then the next thing you know, they're like storming the Capitol and people are dying. And then, but then you see the government not really taking people to task. You know, like they're you know, like I hard about that stuff. And, and like Jill says, like when it's just a couple of three of them, you kind of roll your eyes and go, yeah, okay, whatever. But at the last election, you know, 49% of the U.S. was prepared to reelect Donald Trump. So there's more instability, mental instability or craziness or whatever we want to call it out there than I think we maybe want to admit. But like, I, I just don't believe like showing up at somebody's home is is so crossing a line. Yeah. Like it, it just yeah. it's it's not cool. And Canada is also pretty split down the middle in terms of their politics as well. You know, obviously yes. the the difference between the progressive conservatives and the liberals is not nearly as wide of a gap as it is no. between QAnon conspiracy theorists and like Bernie Bros. You know, Bernie but Bros. Still, <laughs> you know, like even even the NDP here, I mean I would say it's it's more equivalent to like the People's Party. And, you know, and the NDP. NDP. Right? Like, but even then, it's not as, you know, it's not as Canadians, God bless you guys, just do not seem to have the same wherewithal as we do in the U.S. to be like, you know, you'll stand out there with a flag and be like, hey, honk for anti-vax stuff. But generally, the whole, like, busting down doors and screaming, you know. No, we don't mobilize as well as the Americans no, do. No, you're not as physically aggressive, no. you know, as a people generally. It's probably because of the cold, you know, you're just used to being cozy. But <laughs> in America, and the other thing is, I mean, to be to be perfectly honest, is that America, when we're kids, we are raised up on revolution in a sense that we're just like, we were being mistreated by the, the British and we protested, we threw some tea in a harbor, we had a, we fought a guerrilla war, and we won. And now we're America, bald eagles, guns, flags. And Canada is just kind of like, well, we just hung out. And then in 1982, we said, can we bring the Constitution back, please? You know, and <laughs> it's just, but it's tough, you know, for me as an American, I've lived here 12 years now. And I still am like a little annoyed that the Queen's on my money. I'm just like, when I walk into a courtroom and I have to bow to the crown, I'm like, you know, but like, it's just, but because you're like brought up with that, and even though I'm like an extraordinarily liberal person, there's still this little American chamber in my heart that's like, I'm not bowing to the queen. And so, you know, the people who are still there and who are like, you know, breathing the McDonald's air are just, you know, they're, they're nuts. That's just uh, uh, Bill Steven here. I, you know, yes. Cyril, I have to say that Canadians uh, are generationally moving away from the identity of being passive, nice, kind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even in local Peterborough, and uh, you yeah. know, I, I do recall a couple of years ago where we had a white supremacist group that was openly recruiting memberships in Peterborough. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and to Jenny's point, the, the behavior that we saw unfold, you know, as, as a protest in front of Dr. Peugeot's uh, property, is that undoing of Canadians' definition of who they've always been identified as nine, the, the kind, the passive, you know, willing to say, if you step on my toe and, and you know, sorry, and versus, well, okay, I, I forgive you. Now, you know, you got somebody who's willing to yeah. sock you in the nose and say, well, don't ever do it again. Yeah. And I'm sure you don't do it again by cutting off your feet. I think yeah. the, the misconception that Canadians have about themselves is that they're not racist sexist or classist and yes. like they are and have always been mm-hmm. they're just they've just been quieter and more polite about it yeah. with a smile now, yeah it's just like oh you know yeah. they weren't necessarily you know I, I don't know enough about canadian history but you know in the u.s we have this image of like clansmen on horses and and terrible terrible things that have been done to people of color but you know now we're unearthing cemeteries full of indigenous children yeah. uh Yes. The fact is Canada has its own issues that got swept under the rug for a long time and now they have to reckon with it. And I think that reckoning is hard for some people and it makes them very vocal and super extra racist. Uh, Lawrence Hill's wonderful book, uh, The Book of Negroes, is very, very good on that point. Talks about the Canadian experience 
African exploitation, uh, exploitation of Africans. Yeah. And of course, indigenous history. Okay. Uh, we're winding down here the last few minutes. You know, the, the, this issue of um, the consequences of an unstable U.S. for Canada is huge. We really can't do it justice without another five hours. But are there any summation remarks you'd like to make about the waters we're sailing into? Seemingly, without looking at any maps or saying, oh, well, it'll, you know, the sun will come up tomorrow. It'll be fine. You know. It seems to be a Canadian attribute or an Ontario attribute to say, oh, well, things will work out. Bill, I was on one of your other panels and uh, one of your panelists made a comment um, that bears relevance here. Sure. And it was as a white man, older white man, we've always thought that if we allowed the minority groups in positions of power it would undo the things I've achieved. And that's, uh, you know, rephrasing it. Yes. Until the individual realized, wait a second, those groups of people are also looking for the same opportunities that I had. So they won't be undoing my achievements in life. It will somehow be enhancing it. And until more Americans come to that realization that, you know, you don't have to take away or suppress the rights of voters because they oppose your position on issues or ideas or your political philosophy. What it does allow you to do, though, if you are really concerned about humanity, is to have another conversation about how the social contract has to be rechanged. Yes. Well, and on that note, if I had another, if we had uh, another two hours, I would ask, I would ask, I guess, I have to frame it to Jill. um, Could you please explain this American fixation with guns, but I, I won't ask that because we don't have the time. <laughs> I was like, well, let me get into that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. So just to sign off here. Uh, so Jenny, uh, Stephen and Jill, thank you so much for joining uh, this panel discussion. You've been listening to episode 111 of the Pints and Politics podcast. This discussion will be converted to a radio broadcast on Trent Radio, 92.7 FM, CFFF in Peterborough, Nogajinurag, here in Ontario. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics podcast. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So until next time, this is Bill Templeman. 